All right, so if you would, uh, we're continuing our journey through the um, Passion of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. And if you would turn to Luke chapter 22, verses 54 through 71. But as you're turning there, I do want to ask you a question um, that I think is a pretty important question and one we probably don't think about often enough. So what are the key qualities that you admire in a leader? Meaning, what are, what are the things that you admire in someone that you would follow? Because oftentimes I think that um, we, we have come up with some things or, or allowed some things to kind of creep in on us that cause us to follow people that we, we probably shouldn't follow. Now, what, where would you rate eloquence of speech in someone you should follow? We shouldn't, but we do, don't we? I mean, we can, all day long we can say, that's a terrible idea. You should never let some silver-tongued devil lead you anywhere, and yet they do, don't they? If, if the eloquence of the speech is good enough, sometimes that's just good enough for us. What's interesting about Paul, um, uh, who is pretty important to our New Testament faith, is that was he a great speaker, according to the word? No, in fact, uh, it's terrible. And he almost killed a guy. He bored him so bad, he fell out of a window. And so it may have had to do with the length of the sermon as opposed to content. But either way, um, that's not something you want in your resume. And so, so unfortunately, though, I, I think that we, we fall into the trap. And I saw this firsthand uh, in the town that I came from in Macon. We, we had a, a, a mayoral election. And I'm not about to become divisive in politics because, you know, I am perfectly ambiguous and all that. And so, um, but anyway, there was a fellow that was running that, uh, that had um, experience with a multi-million dollar budget, which is pretty important when you're running a city, don't you think? And was a very wise man. Uh, he, he was an old uh, farmer type, uh, man of the earth, just uh, cared about people, but was not a gifted speaker worth a flip. So you would imagine in a debate... He got destroyed. As far as rhetoric goes, again, content, he did great. But as far as how it looked, the other candidate who was probably one of the most gifted anticipators of, of speech I have ever seen south of Bill Clinton. Um, Bill Clinton was probably, rhetoric-wise, one of the most gifted people in terms of being able to anticipate what you were going to ask or say to him so that he could constantly keep it moving in the direction he chose. This guy was much the same way, just gifted at anticipating. And so who do you think won the election? And now let me also say about this guy that he had in the previous election hired a city manager who had been fired from the city of Cleveland, Ohio, for being unable to figure out exactly where the decimal place goes. Which meant that over $7 million just vanished. I mean, it happens, right? Accounting error. Right? And this, this candidate also had set up a multi-million dollar relationship with Ghana uh, because, and this was his platform, we had a YKK plant. Anybody know what YKK makes? What do they make? Zippers and Velcro. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen African garb. How many zippers and how much Velcro? Thank you, Sam. Not much. In fact, none. So I'm not sure what the relationship was, but it sounded good. And everybody went along with it, and nobody questioned it. And the poor guy who actually had experience but couldn't speak very well, he got less than 1,000 votes, one of which was mine. And, uh, and the other fella landslide. It wasn't even close. And I asked some people that I, I, I thought a whole lot of that voted for him. 
And I said, why in the world did you vote for that guy? And they said, well, it comes down to this. He's not going to take what we currently have. Well, that's a terrible reason to follow a guy, don't you think? And put him in charge of stuff. And so it, it just it boggles my imagination as to how it is we choose whom we follow. And oftentimes, we have no earthly idea whom we're following until something difficult happens, right? Until there's some measure of testing of that leader so you can see what you truly have. Um, I have been, uh, unfortunately, on the wrong end of hiring somebody that I thought was fantastic until it hit the fan and realized what I had was not what I thought I had, and we had to fire this guy. And so uh, it, until you see someone tested, until they are put through some form of humiliation, you do not know what you have in a leader. Now, why am I saying all that? Have, we, have I suddenly gone John Maxwellian on you all? Well, no, I haven't. It, the point is to bring out why we should follow Christ. Because what we see in the midst of Christ's greatest humiliation is one of the greatest displays of what Calvin called the munis triplex. And no, you don't need an antibiotic if you have this condition. Um, the munis triplex is the three offices of Christ, which is the prophet, the priest, and the king. And he fulfilled all of those offices so perfectly that he is worthy of us following him. And oftentimes we miss that where he followed those offices most perfectly is actually in his humiliation and not in his exaltation. So what is his humiliation? Well, his humiliation, according to the Westminster Confession of Faith and other Reformed types of which we are, um, it begins at his birth. The fact that he would be born under law into a world that is limited in any way, shape, or form by humanity and broken in sin is humiliating to one who is perfect. And so his humiliation begins there, but it is in the passion that we see it escalate. And here we're going to see a particular escalation that is going to reveal that he is the high priest, he is the true prophet, and he is the only Davidic king. And so that's what we're going to be looking for today. So to begin, let's read uh, from the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is chapter 8.1, and it's of Christ the Mediator. Hear what it says. It pleased God in his eternal purpose. Now remember, one of the big things that we've been looking at for this series is God's sovereignty and his sovereign moving in all of these things and, and how he has controlled even the details, even where the Passover meal would be held and even the timing of the taking of Christ and so on. And so again, we want to make sure that we're keeping our eyes open for where God is sovereign. And so it pleased him and it was part of his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus his only begotten son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of his church, the heir of all things and judge of the world unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be in, by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Amen. So it has been God's purpose for Jesus to serve those three offices in a perfect way. And so as we look at the scripture today, we want to pay special attention to the ways in which he does those things. So if you would turn to the scriptures, let's look at Luke twenty-two fifty-four through 62 and hear God's word again this morning. Then they seized him. So where were they? Well, they were in the Garden of Gethsemane is where we last left off. And Judas had betrayed Christ. 
And when confronted with the question, would you betray the son of man with a kiss, meaning the son of man is, is a very pregnant term that had great meaning that should have triggered in Judas, I'm not merely betraying a common human being for whom there is no real purpose because he's not doing what I want him to do. He was betraying the very son of man, something that would have been very meaningful to Judas. And remember Judas's response. He said, I am so sorry, right? What did he say? Nothing. He backed away as the religious leaders and the temple guards came forward. And remember, Peter said, hey, what do we do? And he said, well, I'm not waiting for an answer. So he whacked some guy's ear off because he was a bad shot. And Jesus says, no more of this. This is not how my kingdom will come, essentially. He heals the high priest's uh, servant's ear, which we know to be Malchus from other texts, and, um, and basically says, you saw me every single day. If I was in such violation of the law, why didn't you just arrest me in the temple when you had me? Why do you come out under cover of darkness against someone as if he is a thief and a robber? And they couldn't answer that question either, could they? Because to confess is to own it all the way down. And so here we see they take him. Notice who they didn't take. They didn't take any of the disciples um, who were present, which was probably Peter, James, and John. They flee with the exception of Peter, um, who we know from this text is following close behind. It goes on to say, Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. Now, one of the things that Luke doesn't get into that the other Gospels do is the trial at night, which happens here at the high priest's house. He instead focuses more on Peter's denial, which we'll get into here in a second. But <laughs> it's important to know that all during this time, Jesus is not just merely standing around. He is being tried. So he's being peppered with questions, and he's being mocked, and he's being mistreated, even in this whole kangaroo court process, which, by the way, what they're doing is against the law. These men who say that the law is the single most important thing that there is were so willing to abrogate it. You know what abrogate means? They were just willing to shove it aside because the end justified the means. Something that I'm afraid that many of us do all too often. And so it goes on to say in the text, and, and when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light, looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he, being Peter, denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. Now, do you have any idea of the weight of that statement? Remember, Jesus had said previously, he who denies me before man, I will deny him before my Father in heaven. Now, I know there's many of you who've had a question about that and have said, well, I mean, is there hope for any of us? Is there any of us who have not at some level passively or actively denied the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, here's the good news is that that's not a statement about a one-time slip-up that you could stumble into. That is a statement which I think that Judas lived out in total perfectly. So given all of the opportunities of grace, if you're going to own it all the way down, then that's when you are denied before the Lord God. It is only when you have said that this will define my life. It is not just merely an instance at which 
you stumble and you have a chance to share the gospel with someone and you don't, which is, by the way, a denial of Christ, is it not? Or you feel a prick in your heart to share something with someone and you don't because the Spirit has stirred you. It's, it's, you didn't blaspheme the Holy Spirit by denying him. You denied this opportunity Christ given. You're denying Christ. But that doesn't mean that that defines the whole of your life because in the sanctification process, there is opportunity because of this high priest to be restored. And we're going to see that with Peter here in just a few moments. It goes on. He says, um, after this, the, the servant girl confronts him, 58, and a little while later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. Sounds kind of like Johnny Cash there for a second, didn't he? Or either I did, I'm not sure. I don't think Peter being Galilean sounded like Johnny Cash, but it's an interesting statement because it is, it's not just a man, I'm not. No, this was an emphatic denial. He was saying it with great emphasis. It was more like, man, I am not. Think about all that Peter had seen. Now, why is he doing this? Why is he denying Christ? Does he suddenly not believe in Jesus? Does he suddenly have no hope in him at all? What is he preserving? His own skin. Now, what led him to this place? Well, what did he do in the garden that Christ had asked him to do and he didn't do? He said, pray lest you enter into temptation. Is not the hour of temptation at hand now? Second time over, first temptation was to whack somebody's head off with your sword and turn this whole thing into a bloodbath. Second temptation hitting him now is the one that he was warned of previously when Christ said, Simon, Simon, Satan has called for you to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith would hold. And he says this, which I think is far more, even more beautiful in that he says, and when you return, strengthen the brothers. And so, Simon, Peter, is where he's at because of his failure to engage in the means of grace that Christ had offered him. You are in the place that you are in, maybe even right now, and the places that you have been because you too have failed to access the means of grace that have been offered to you. Do I say that in condemnation? No, I say that alongside you because I too stand in that place. And it's very important that we recognize it. So often when we find ourselves off kilter and doubting and denying and backpedaling and so broken that it has probably more to do with the weeks or months or even years of not accessing the means of grace like we have been called to that are right there and easy for us to gain. And yet we want to blame him for it. And it goes on. Because two denials would not be near enough. Verse 59, and after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, no, 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 certainly this man who also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. You can tell by his speech. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. So he is denying it in toto. He is laying it all bare. It's not that just a, he doesn't know who Christ is. He's saying, I have no earthly idea what it is you're talking about. Which is interesting. Then what was he doing there? 
If he had no earthly idea who Christ was, what was he doing showing up at the trial, hanging out at the fire pit with the ne'er-do-wells? So, Peter seems to be total in his denial. And it goes on to say, and immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Well, what does that matter? And what are roosters doing crowing in the middle of the night? As it were. Well, there's someone who controls all of creation, even this detail was seen to, and would have stood out specifically to Peter. What a means of grace. This wasn't just some common, the sun was coming up necessarily, and the rooster was crowing because it made sense. No, this was something that was specific for Peter to know exactly the ground on which he stood. What a grace that our sovereign Lord would make it so clear when he was drifting away. So the rooster crows as Christ had foretold it would. 61, and he and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. This is the only gospel that records this. Now, it could be that Christ was looking at him through a window. It could have been that that Christ was being tried in maybe an open portico. I don't know for sure. Um, But either way, the Lord in his priestliness found the time in the middle of his own mocking and trial to turn and look at the one who was drifting away. Now, how do you think Christ looked at him? With condemnation? Do you think he looked at Peter like, are you kidding me? I'm getting tried here, and all you can do is deny me after all I've said and done? I just sounded like some of your fathers or some of you who are fathers. I've sounded like me as a father, by the way. After all I've done for you, how in the world can you do this? And yet I don't suspect that that is the content of the look. I I suspect that the look was intent on making sure that Peter understood the moment. Because in this moment, Christ the high priest is offering him yet again grace. And listen to how Peter responds. And Peter remembered the sayings of the Lord. He had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter said nothing. Is that what it says? No, Peter didn't do what uh, what Judas did. It says, and he went out and he wept bitterly because he knew whom he was denying and he felt the weight of the hour And it broke him. So Jesus in his high priestly function made sure that Peter would not be without the opportunity for grace. And the sovereignty of the Lord was full at work even in this very, very, very dark moment. Hear how John Calvin speaks of this particular event. He says, Peter's fall, which is here related, is a bright mirror of our weakness. In his repentance, also, a striking instance of the goodness and mercy of God is held out to us. This narrative, therefore, which relates to a single individual, contains a doctrine which may be applied to the whole church and which indeed is highly useful, both to instruct those who are standing 
to cherish anxiety and fear. Let me pause for just a second because Calvin doesn't mean what you think he means by anxiety and fear, i.e. being neurotic about messing up. What he means is exactly what Paul said in Galatians 6. He says, take heed lest you fall. What he's saying is, be concerned about how it is that your life reflects the honor and the goodness of God and the, and the beauty of Christ. He's saying that, that you should be anxious to make sure that God is glorified, that you should fear the Lord your God, which is the beginning of knowledge. Not fear him because he will destroy you, but fear him because he's so good and offers you so much. So for those who stand, we should take heed. He is saying, and then it goes on, and to comfort those who have fallen by holding out to them the hope of pardon. So in this darkest moment where Christ's humiliation is beginning to escalate, and even those he loves have departed from him and are actively denying him, he in his high priestliness is turning to them, turning to Peter specifically to show him that in fact what he said is true, he will get a chance to return, and when he does, it'll be to strengthen the brothers. Now, that's an interesting thing that he said, your colossal failure, of which I don't know is matched anywhere else in the between the now and the not yet, by another Christian. Your colossal failure will actually serve to be a means of opportunity and restoration to all you know. That's what he's saying. He says, when you return, strengthen the brothers. Now, how many of you have seen your failure, that that was your first thought, when you've messed up huge, whatever that means for you, right? What's your first thought? How much is this going to cost me? At some level, right? Instead of thinking, how is God going to take and use this in the alchemy of his grace to glorify himself and to strengthen and encourage others who are struggling as I am and have? Christian, that should be your first response. In your repentance, by the way. That you should be looking for where God will take and use that which you have meant for evil or you stumbled upon in evil or evil has befallen you and he will take and he will use it for good. Amen? So, my question to you is how do you respond when you're confronted with sin and denial? Because see, this is, this is one of the canaries in the coal mine, isn't it? This evidence is, I don't care. You going around and telling me how blessed you are doesn't tell me one whit of anything, really. What really tells me something is when your humanity is on full display and you have gotten it quite wrong, whatever it may be, and how you then respond to that tells me everything you believe about Christ and what he has done for you. That is when the rubber hits the road. That is when it is proven Right? So how do you respond? Do you, like I am guilty of at times, defend yourself? But wait a minute, I don't think you understand. I, I, I think there's an interpretation issue probably here. Or do you play the game of, I'm not bad as they are. At least I didn't kill a kitten or something. Cut me some slack. 
No, you've been cut all the slack in eternity. See, one of the things that I want for our church to become, and we've been talking about this as elders, and we've been talking about this as staff, <coughs> is a confessional church. Now, I'm not talking about the Westminster Confession. I'm not talking about the Belgic Confession. I'm talking about being able to confess our sins such that we can be rise from it, redeemed from it, James 5 Confession. Now, I'm not talking about neurotic weird stuff, right? All we can do is, is like you're, you're coming up and you're like, hey, I, I just thought a bad thought about somebody. And then you walk away two seconds later, you're like, hey, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I thought it again, I think. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about us recognizing that the church ought be the safest place of all to be able to come out and say, hey, I'm struggling. I don't know if I believe some of this stuff. This sovereignty deal, man, I, I don't know how to reconcile it with the evil that I see in the world. I don't know how to reconcile it with the evil I see in me. I don't know how to reconcile it with the evil I see in my children. I don't know what to do with this. See, if we, the church, can't handle doubt, and we can't walk with people as they are struggling and doubting and have fallen and struggled. If all we do is just try to make sure that you think I'm okay, then what in the world are we doing? Let's just be the Kiwanis Club. I mean, if we, if we can't come to each other and say, hey, the wheels are coming off. I don't know how to keep them on. And us not go, oh my Lord, I think you, we, we got to hide this. We can't let people know that you got this going on. Because if they find out, well, if Christ would not deny Peter in the darkest moment in all of Christian history, woe be unto us if we would deny someone in their darkest moment. And that takes time, doesn't it? It takes relationship. Because you're not just going to, I don't want you, if you don't know me, just come up and say, hey, I'd like to share with you that I like to hit puppies with a bat. I want to walk with you in that. I do. But let's, let's probably go to lunch first. Let's kind of get to know each other. I don't want that to be the straight off the belt way there. Um, and so, so let's, let's strive to become a James 5 confessional church because of who, the, who our high priest is. Woe be unto us if we forgive less than he does. Let us, and I can tell you as an elder, unfortunately, most marriages, by the time they get to us and say, hey, the wheels are coming off. No, the wheels have come off and you're looking for affirmation. That's not a critique. That cuts a bunch of different ways. But it helps a whole lot if we know earlier on that you're struggling. So we can walk with you, not in judgment or condemnation, I know what happens is people are afraid they I'll be removed. Uh, the, the, I'll be a sermon illustration. Cameron's wild up there. Who knows what he'll say sometimes? Uh, he uses names. It freaks us out. I, I, okay, I'll quit doing that if it'll help you. I will. It's not important to me. I'd rather you be able to get what you need. So if there's something that I am doing as your pastor, hear me. Not that I'm looking for a landslide of emails and appointments, but if it's what it takes, it's what it takes. But if there's anything that I or the elders or any of the culture here at Christ Community Church that is, is holding you from being confessional, tell me and I will repent and it'll change. Now, as long as it's orthodox and not something like, hey, you preaching about Jesus all the time? I don't really want to. Well, that's not going to change. Um, but if it's something significant, I want to know about it. 
Because I want you to be free to be able to access what you need in the time of trouble and be able to enjoy the high priest who grants you the same look he granted Peter, the same grace he granted Peter, the same opportunity. Amen? Now, the scene shifts from Peter to Christ himself. Let's look at verses 63 through 65. Now we're going to see Jesus the prophet mocked. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Jesus' humiliation is escalating He's being beaten by those who are holding him and they're mocking his prophetic abilities. But what's interesting is all they are doing is fulfilling Luke 18, 32. Proving that he is in fact the true prophet. He has already foretold of exactly what they would do and they're falling right in line in the sovereignty of God. Proving he doesn't even have to open his mouth. He knows exactly who struck him. But what's so beautiful about this is I don't know about you, but try blindfolding me and striking me and asking me who, who struck me and see how I respond. I cannot tell you that I would be Christ-like in that moment. I cannot even tell you if you didn't blindfold me and you struck me and said, hey, I was just testing your Christ-likeness, that it would go very well. I wish it would. I wish I was better than I am. But I'm not. And yet, that doesn't have the final say. This does. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says about this moment. He says, Our Lord's calm submission to insults like those here described shows the depth of his love towards sinners. Had he so willed, he could have stopped the insolence of his enemies in a moment. He could cast out devils with a word, could have summoned a legion of angels to his side and scattered those wretched tools of Satan to the wind. But our Lord's heart was set on the great work he had come on earth to do. He had undertaken to purchase our redemption by his own humiliation, and he did not flinch from paying the uttermost farthing price. We see here Christ is fulfilling what he prayed. Not my will, but your will be done. And he did it because he loves us. He did it for the joy that was set before him so he could endure such humiliation. And that joy being our redemption even now. So what's interesting is how this compares to Peter. Note how Peter can't even tolerate the questions. He's not even being beaten or mocked or slapped or anything else. He's just being asked, aren't you with him? Don't you know him? And Peter is backpedaling and And denying, and in some gospels, cursing. And yet Jesus, Jesus is able to withstand what I think is some of the most humiliating circumstances ever. They blasphemed him. That's a word that I don't think carries weight with us like it ought to. But they blasphemed him, and he took it because of God's will. He took it because of what he knew it would accomplish. He understood that his humiliation was redemptive. And as we look, it continues and it escalates further. 
verses 66 through 71, this is where the king is condemned. When day came, meaning all night long, Christ had been mocked and beaten. And I don't know about you, for those of you who work the night shift, that feels like being mocked and beaten all night long, but this was the real deal. All night long, questioned, uh, forced to stand, forced to do things that he didn't necessarily want to do probably in his humanity. So it says, when day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council and said, if you are the Christ, tell us. Now, why do you think they would ask him that kind of a question? What was their purpose in doing this? Well, what they're looking for is a confession. If he says, I am the Christ, then he can be brought up on charges by Rome. Because if he claims to be the Messiah, the king who had come, that means that he has in fact supplanted the one true king according to Rome, which is Caesar. And so he can be brought up on charges of treason or sedition. And then Rome can kill him without flinching. Interestingly, Christ doesn't give them that title straight away. And look at his response. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. Now, why do you think he said that? Because Christ, what he's pointing to is I would, it would, this whole thing would be so much more amazing if, if you would just accept that I am the Christ. And I'm not going to give it to you because that's not the way this is going to work. Actually, I'm going to force you to not confess that I am the Davidic king, which is going to cost you judgment. But I got ahead of myself. He goes on to say, um, and if I ask you, you will not answer. Now, this is based on he had previously asked them about John's baptism, if you remember. He said, by, by whom does John's baptism come? And they got together and they said, all right, here's the problem. We're caught on the horns of the dilemma. If we answer one way, we're dead. If we answer the other way, we got to follow him. So let's just not say anything, right? All right, break. I don't know. <laughs> and so he said, he's telling them yet again, when you were asked something of great importance, you were too fearful to even answer. So if I were to tell you, it wouldn't matter. If I were to ask you, you wouldn't speak. And he's also displaying to them his understanding of the sovereign moving of the Lord. He says, so he switches it, gears, wise, and says, but, ending the discussion about the Christ, from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Wait a minute, what did he just say? He just quoted Psalm 110 in Daniel 7. Now, why are those texts pregnant with meaning? Well, if you know anything about those texts, what they in fact say is that he is the Davidic king who will reign over all things, and he will be the one to judge, not them. Now, they didn't get it, did they? No, they did. Notice their response. So they all said, not not just one of them, so in unison, essentially, they cry out, are you the son of God then? which is far more problematic for them as Jews than him just being the Christ. So wait a minute, let me see if I get this straight. You're telling us that you are the fulfillment of Daniel 7 and Psalm 110? Oh, 
oh man. And he says, oh, now you've confessed something. You say that I am. And then they said, what further testimony do we need? He's hung himself. We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. He thinks he is the son of God, the king who has come. What's interesting about this is essentially, instead of giving himself up to Rome, he gave himself up to them. He gave them the confession that they needed to kill him. Again, exercising his willingness to do the will of God and exercising his own understanding of God's sovereign moving. How many of you have given yourselves up knowing that it was the best thing to do? Or how many of you have given yourselves up accidentally recognizing you probably shouldn't have said that? But Christ knew fully what he was doing and he was doing it for us. Because he knew who he was and he knew who they were which was why he's able to give himself up Daryl Bach says this in his commentary and Daryl Bach is someone who's been quoted before if you haven't been with us he teaches at Southern Seminary in Kentucky and I'm going to make one comment about something he says because I don't all the way agree with it how it's worded but he says Jesus in this moment says very little He claims to be going directly into God's presence and will exercise authority over those who are judging him. So what Daryl Bach is saying, this is what he means when he says that he is the son of man, that he will sit at the right hand. So he claims to be going directly into God's presence and will exercise authority over those who are judging him. The trial is a sham, but it is part of a plan to reassert God's rule. Now, I, I don't think it's, the reassertion of God's rule, because that has never been changed, I would just say so that it would be, be more plain still to those who are blind. And it goes on to say, Jesus' words lead to his conviction because the claim is too radical to believe and too dangerous to leave alone. For the leadership, neutrality is not possible. They cannot sit idly by and let him go. Jesus' claim require a decision. So my question to you is who do you confess that Jesus is? That's a really important question. And it's one that you should not take lightly because it is not about the verbiage of your mouth that answers the question now, is it? It is not about what you would desire him to be and you to be in reference to him. It is what he is and how you live, most importantly. And so... Don't just answer the question in your mind. Instead, I would take this Lord's Day to meditate through uh, the, the person and work of Christ and to think on who is Jesus to me and how does my life reflect what it is I say I believe. Because some of us are unfortunately adding to the caricature where we say one thing's with our mouth and we are utterly Um, hypocritical with everything else we do. Does that mean that we're supposed to be perfect people? No. But we ought to be confessional people. And we ought to even be confessional to some of the unbelieving folk around us so they could see what it looks like when a Christian has an opportunity to put on full display the grace of their high priest. The true prophet, the Davidic king. 
And so we have to look at all areas of our life. As we've talked about this before, there's a compartmentalization that goes on, doesn't it? There's work. (laughs) You can't go touching that, Cameron. Now you can go so far, but that mouth of yours probably needs to find its way shut. No, work is probably one of the more important places you would consider this because where do you spend 60% of your life, most of you? Except for Bill Tippins, who's retired. Thankfully retired, blessedly retired. If you don't, and so for some of you, it's also about parenting because you spend an enormous amount of time in parenting as well, don't you? So who is Christ? Who do you confess that Christ is in your parenting, in your work life? For those of you who are in school, who do you confess that Christ is? Some of you are about to graduate. The decisions that you've made and are making, how are you confessing who Christ is as you make those decisions? Has he had any impact at all? Job decisions, family decisions. For those of you thinking about getting married, you better know who Christ is because you're going to need him. So who Christ is is an incredibly important question for us to examine because is not Genesis to Revelation a confession of who Christ is? If it takes that many pages, oughtn't it take you a little more time than just some snapped answer? As we close out, listen to what G.C. Burkhauer says, and he was a a Dutch theologian post-World War II um, who wrote, volumes on dogmatics. Uh, There's 14 of them. I inherited three from Sam Larson. So you get this. This is courtesy of Sam Larson, i.e. G.C. Burkauer, from the work of Christ. He says, we do not speak of three separate offices, but one indivisible office. So it's not that Christ was high priest here, and he's true prophet over here, and then sometimes he's king. No, he was all three all the time. No division whatsoever. Even though, according to Calvin, this consists of three parts, In fulfilling these offices, he accomplishes the one work of salvation. It was his will to do what his office required, and therefore his office is also connected with his humiliation. So in Christ being humiliated and and dealing with what he dealt with, he proved himself to be worthy of us to follow. Because of all that he purchased for us, because of the redemption that was gained because of what he endured because he truly was the high priest, because he truly was the prophet, because he truly was the Davidic king who reigns over all. So Jesus Christ, in his humiliation, reveals all of those things to us so that we would not be without a priest, a prophet, and a king. And just as he is all those things all the time, he is available to us in those functions all the time. And that's incredibly important because sometimes we need a word, don't we? We need for his word to speak to us prophetically. And there are times that we need a priest, not in the Catholic sense, but in the sense of someone looking at us in the midst of our wreckage and fallenness who looks on us and says, now when you return from this, encourage those around you. And we need a king. We need a king who governs well and who holds all things together. Because I don't know about you, there's just times it feels like it's blowing apart. So, as we close out this morning, I do want to encourage you one more time. Maybe not even just today, 
to confess who Christ is in all areas of your life may take more than a day. And it's something you need to meditate on often because we forget, don't we? We go blind in the moment, don't we? So let this question not leave you. Let this question of who Christ is and who you confess he is with your life not be something you check off and go, okay, I got it. Now let's, let's move on to speaking in tongues. Which we're PCA, we don't do that. So let me pray for us in closing. And if there's anything that you need this morning, elders will be available in the back to pray for you. I'm available. Come grab one of us. Um, we don't want you to leave here today with something kind of hanging in the balance for you, even if it's you don't even know quite how to form the question, you just want to start the conversation. Please come talk to us. Remember, and please do not forget, to consider if there's anything that we are doing as a church culture that is keeping you from being able to be confessional in full, please come and talk to me. It may not be an easy conversation, but at least it'll be going somewhere. Amen? Father, thank you for Jesus who is the true high priest and the true prophet and the Davidic king. Thank you that he was willing to endure what I don't have the courage to endure, not even in a moment. I, like Peter, if you just ask me a tough question, sometimes I'll run. And God, certainly if you strike me, if I'm struck, I wouldn't respond like Jesus did. But I thank you that he did. I thank you for what it means for us. I thank you for what it purchases for us. I thank you for his humiliation, though it weighs so heavy on me. And I don't think it was just mythologic or fairy tale. I feel it. I'm so sorry that it is my sin that required it. So Lord, I pray that you would help us all to celebrate and confess the person and work of Christ and the beauty that it is despite the hell it had to endure. In Christ's name, amen.